You are listening to the How to Talk to Girls podcast with me, Trip Kramer. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the How to Talk to Girls podcast. I'm your host, Trip Kramer from tripadvice.com. Today, I'm talking to a monk, Monk Yoon Ro. And I'm very excited that you get to peek in on my conversation with him. He has a very interesting past. He's going to be telling you a little bit about it. Something that does stick out is there was a movie that was actually based on something he did. There's a movie called Pay It Forward that was based on something he did where he paid it forward. He's going to tell you this story in just a bit. But basically, he was featured on MSNBC in a segment where he ended up paying for someone's coffee at a Starbucks drive through And he paid for the person behind him, but not because it was an act of kindness. It's actually because the guy behind him was honking and getting really angry. So instead of getting angry himself, Monk Yoon Ro, also known as Arthur Rosenfeld, paid for the guy behind him in line. And what ended up happening is it caused a chain reaction where everyone started to pay for the person behind them. And it was a really cool thing. It was picked up on the news. And now we get to speak to him today. We get to talk a little bit about, well, not a little, really a lot about how to get out of your own head. That's one of the topics that we cover. And just a few more diving into the idea of Taoism, Buddhism, and all things Zen. And I believe that this is going to help you in terms of being a better man, being a more attractive man, getting out of your head and more into your body and just being able to stay more present in the interactions that you have with people and with women. And it all starts with this. This is a very foundational episode, meaning once you have this stuff figured out, the stuff that's going on in your head, the inner game, it really carves the path out for you for the future in terms of what you can then take that to and then working on more things like talking to girls and charisma and flirting and all that stuff. But it all starts here. And I wanted to get it from one of the best sources, an actual monk, and he has agreed to do this interview, which you're going to hear right now. So let's dive in. Here's my interview with Monk Yoon Ro. Hi, Yoon. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. It's a, It was an interesting and unexpected request, and I'm looking forward to the chat. I, I bet. I, you are my first monk. <laughs> I, I can say that having on the podcast. And, if you'll, if and you'll it, forgive the expression, yes. <laughs> it, it's, it's, uh, I knew that when I reached out to you, uh, and, and I think you did respond in this way, like, what do you want me to be on this podcast for? <laughs> and you know, if, if someone kind of looks at the name of the podcast and, and they look at the titles of the podcast, it won't really be enough. Well, it definitely won't be enough to give you an, a sense of what this podcast is is really about and and to give you an idea even though I, I believe I, I said this to you previously it, it's really about how to be the best man and person that you could be and one of the you know one of the benefits of that is being able to to find a a woman or have the type of dating life that you want and so I wanted to have you on the podcast because I, I just think you have a lot of interesting things to say that could help guys in this area of their life, but really in, in all areas, and it just makes a, a better person. So maybe you can tell the guys who you are and how long you've been a, a monk for, or how long, or when you got into that, 
and just a little bit of your background and story. Sure, happy to do so. I, I should say just as a as a preamble that I think the tack that I'm going to take, which you know connects with my own trajectory and my origin story, which I'll share in a moment, is that you know one can look at your podcast and this subject and say that you know we we can take this from caveman days of you know power and the raw realities of 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 couples and coupling and behavior and bring it up to you know 20 and now 2021 uh which is a few days away and see how we've we've evolved in the way that we look at ourselves and our relationships and and similarly, my own story is one of trajectory and evolution in from basic spiritual urges to what I hope is now, you know, some 50 years later, uh, a more refined take on what it is to be an authentic person living in the world and have some integrity. And I guess I'm going to say that people, not just women, but people in general respond to the kind of power and magnetism, I guess, you, if you want to use that word, that comes from somebody being comfortable in their skin and having some authenticity. So, you know, I, I grew up in Manhattan in, a, in an upper-class Jewish family, actually, and I was fed a wide range of narratives and messages about culture and society and identity and personhood and religion, economics, politics, as was everybody in that day and time. And as we all are now, including the weapons of mass distraction, which plague us from mainstream media. And for some reason, I guess I just had a seeker gene. I wasn't buying a lot of what was being sold to me. And one of the things that spurred on my skepticism about this narrative about the world, and of course that pertains to relationships in the context of our chat here, was that my father was a very famous physician. So famous, in fact, that people came from around the world to see him, including captains of industry, princes, kings, queens, Hollywood stars and moguls and so on. And what I noticed as those people paraded through our New York City apartment was that these people that represented everything that we all, every guy and, and almost everybody thinks they want, fame, beauty, power, money, celebrity, so on. These people were for the most part, unhappy, unstable. Some of them really hated themselves. Some of them were assholes. There were, of course, some really great people in that mix. Um, but I wouldn't say that there was any more of a positive breakdown in that population than there would be in an average population, and maybe even less. And so when I saw that the narrative that I was being told about, boy, you know, this is, you want to grow up to be one of these people. I mean, remember I was just a little boy. And, and when I saw that they weren't, you know, so great after all, I began to doubt, to question what other narratives 
that I'd been given, what other stories and things I'd been told were not maybe true. And that, that really, you know, facilitated, catalyzed my quest to find deeper truths in life and deeper meanings in my experience of living. And that through, you know, many years of iterations, first, uh, you know, because this was New York in the 60s and it was a rough place and I was mugged all the time and I kind of began to entertain fantasies in the face of Bruce Lee movies and Kwai Chang Kane, David Carradine's TV show about Kung Fu, that, you know, maybe I'd be able to defend myself. And, you know, I was, this was a Holocaust survivor family too. So there was a great um, fear of being made to do things you didn't want to do, at least and sort of an unstable and threatening world. And so I entered Eastern philosophy through the martial arts, and, and then I became really more interested in, in, the art, in, in, the, in the art side than the fighting side, and finally in the philosophy, and that um, many, many decades of this practices and study led me to become ordained by leave of the Chinese government, which was a rare thing, I think, and for an American, quite rare. Um, uh, eight years ago. So anyway, I, I, I have my uh, work now as a, as a monk doing talks like this and uh, teaching meditation and Tai Chi and, and philosophy and writing many books, novels and books on philosophy. So that's where I come from and what I bring to the chat today. Now, you practice Taoism, is that correct? Right. What's the difference between Taoism and Buddhism? So there is some small intertwining, particularly in certain Taoist sects, which are you know very porous and inclusive, which is one of the reasons why Taoism has survived for thousands of years, to include you know some Buddhist ideas to recognize the Buddha as a great teacher. But fundamentally, Taoism is much older than Buddhism, and it comes from uh, Neolithic shamanic practices of the river valley cultures of China before China was China. So we're, we're talking about actually thousands of years before the common era. And listeners will actually know much more about Taoism, probably than they know about Buddhism, unless they're practicing Buddhists, and much more than they know that they know about Taoism because most people listening to this will not know that George Lucas based his Star Wars franchise on Taoist ideas. So the Jedi knights and masters were Taoist masters and practitioners. And the philosophies, uh, things like may the force be with you, uh, go with the flow, the idea of juxtaposing the rebels who were nature-loving in touch with personal power and greater things than themselves uh, against something like the empire and the clone warriors and the death star and you know technological advanced highly stratified societies with rigid rules and roles for people lucas's uh, vision was a juxtaposition of the historic tension between the confucianists and the taoists in chinese history the confucianists being the people who lent structure to Chinese society and told you, you know, what to do and who to be and how to behave. And uh, under this sort of autocratic model that persists in China to this day, now, you know, they have a new emperor now, the head of the Communist Party has declared himself, you know, 
emperor. <laughs> so, so we we see the same uh, thing in China now that has always been, and it's very top down. And Taoism is very bottom up. So again, this is a nature loving, spontaneous, intuitive, free uh, philosophy positioned against um, something that is rigid and authoritarian. So Taoism again, you know, is um, is more like what we see in the Jedi and Star Wars than it is in anything we see in our own politics today. So when people come to you, and we'll maybe even say guys specifically, and they need help, what, what kind of questions are they asking you? Where do, they, where do you feel the most pain or problem areas come from? And, and what are they saying? So there's, you know, the human brain has a long history of being plagued by what we call the monkey mind. And the inability to concentrate and become solid in your personhood, to be calm and equanimous, to have harmony and balance in your own thinking and behavior in life, to have self-discipline and discipline in general. This has like always been a, a place where people needed work, which is why Taoist practices have been popular in China and millions of people over thousands of years have engaged them, whether it's Qigong or Tai Chi or meditation. And the idea in the Taoist model is that we work on the body to create a foundation upon which to build an enlightened mind. We don't really use the term enlightened. That's much more of a Buddhist idea. But when Guys call me and they can't settle their mind and they are darting in their attention this way and that. There are many different possible causes for this. And some of it is genetic. We all, I, I myself long suffered from ADHD and you know couldn't sit still and still have that problem. Sometimes I find myself in the driveway and I last thing I remember is I was working on a book on my computer. I don't even remember getting up. I don't know why I'm standing in there driveway or the street, I have no, no memory of going. It's a very typical, you know, ADHD problems, despite, you know, all these years of meditation. So it could be that, you know, you're born with a certain brain and there's more and more of that, you know, some part of that is on the autism spectrum now. But there's also more workable and treatable and addressable causes for not being settled in your mind. And of course, you know, settled people who have that certain personal power are obviously much more attractive to everybody, not just to the opposite sex. So another reason that people can have these uh, issues is diet, right? They can be doing too many drugs. They can be using too much caffeine, too much booze. They can be coked up. They can be distracted also by a lot of sugar in their diet. So, you know, cleaning up the diet is a very important step. You know, the mind settles down greatly when it's not overstimulated by poor eating. So, you know, we can limit or eliminate caffeine. We can go to a vegan diet, which will calm the body and calm the mind and give a lot more uh, strength and stamina in bed and everywhere else, actually. Also very important for the world. Another big problem, um, which... I try to address with people who come to me with these kinds of things is the way we are being trained in our lack of attention. So 
this attention span deficit, which everybody has these days, is created or at least greatly exaggerated and exacerbated by the digital world. If we're all trained to hyperlink from one thing to the other, to be constantly checking that most addictive of all devices, more addictive than sex and cocaine, that so-called smartphone, it's actually a dumb phone, but the human brain is being ruined by these devices. So, you know, if you're, if you're with a woman and you, you know, are constantly checking your phone while you're sitting there on a first or second date and you're sitting across a table from her at dinner, for example, and, you know, both of you are constantly looking at your phone. Number one, you know, you've pulled yourself out of being present. You can't have the experience of actually being with somebody if you're half on your phone. But the other thing about it is that no woman wants to feel that they're not interesting enough to the guy that he would really rather be looking at his phone when she's sitting, you know, two feet away from him across the table. And it's a big turnoff, you know, to, to people to have you not give them your full attention when you're with them, regardless of the stage of the relationship. So, you know, these, these kinds of things are the things that I sometimes get from guys who, you know, they, they can't, they can't settle their mind. So we have these steps, you know, we clean up the diet, you start some kind of practice, and we can talk more about that later. You try to wean yourself off the, off the phone and pay a little more attention to the people you're with. And this simple, seemingly such a simple thing makes a huge difference. Interesting. Interesting. So let me ask you this, and this is kind of a, a bigger question. I'm sure you could probably talk about this for hours, if not days and weeks, but how do you get out of your own head? You know, that, that's one of the things I've, I've always tried to help guys with because I think a lot of guys are so in their head and in their distractions like you're talking about, right? The weapons of mass distraction, as you call that, which I really liked. And how do we get out of our head in terms of getting in our own way and negative thought patterns and anxiety and depression? You did mention a little bit about how diet can help with that. But in terms of this more specific question, how would you help someone who's always inside their head and unconscious, so to speak, spiritually? So it's not only spiritually. It, it, it can be unconscious on more prosaic levels too, on simpler and more practical levels too. So one thing that we must not ever do is this so-called multitasking. So this, this is a very strange and pernicious idea that doing a lot of things at the same time is a sign of competence or is in some way a desirable quality. It is the worst possible idea and it is the dumbest and lowest level of human function. It is only another term for doing a lot of things at the same time poorly. We must wean ourselves off of the habit of doing all these things. Like, for example, in what I mentioned about sitting with somebody at dinner and looking at your phone, you know. So when you ask me about, you know, how do we change these things? One thing we can say is that we have to look at how we got where we are and we have to deconstruct that process. So, you know, we got where we are because we did a lot of things wrong or things were done to us wrong. 
when I say we did a lot of things wrong, I don't want to say that in a way that sounds judgmental about people's choices, because a lot of this is completely unwitting and unwilling. So, you know, none of us asked to be born into this combat field of weapons of mass distraction. You know, these things are foisted upon us by a system that does not have our best interests in mind. We are led in the direction of these behaviors, not because they benefit us, but because they benefit some other entity, whether it's a corporation or a government, someone who is paying money for our attention. This is what the attention economy is all about. This is what the digital world, there are people out there, thousands of engineers and Silicon Valley folks who are trying to figure out the best way to disrupt and command our attention to get our eyeballs on their product or on their way of thinking. And, you know, becoming aware of this, you can, if you really think about it, begin to feel a little bit annoyed that nobody really asked us, do you want to live this way? It may command your dollar to go buy somebody's products, but it leaves you feeling empty and anxious and dissatisfied and distracted. And nobody really cares about that collateral damage to the person because this is not a system designed to care about people. It's designed to care about money. So somehow, you know, we got way off track in our society. For example, we have been taught that the purpose of business is to make a profit. Well, this is not the purpose of business at all. The purpose of business is to create and provide a product and services and serve the community and to provide jobs and livelihood for the community. It's a people-oriented idea, not a thing-oriented idea. But in this country, in the West, in America, that has become terribly perverted, which is one of the reasons why we are so assaulted and assailed by these, again, these weapons of mass distraction. So once we understand what's happening to us and all the things that we have unconsciously bought into in terms of our lifestyle and our decisions, we can begin to dismantle the addictions and the habits and quest and find equilibrium and peace. And through that, we find power and we become more attractive to the opposite sex. Now, you know, you're asking me very specific things about how to do that. And step one is this, what I've talked about in terms of just becoming aware that you're doing this and that you are a victim of these things. And if you start to become not okay, with being that victim, you can make the choices like turn off the phone, leave your phone in another room, never sleep with your phone in the same room as you. Make sure you use the uh, app on most phones, which tells you about your usage and take a hard critical look at how much time you're actually spending on the phone. And forget about television and streaming things, turn all that off. Don't do any of those things. Read books. And when you first return to reading books, you'll think, well, this is, you know, grandpa technology. This is old stuff. Uh, I want to be titillated. I want to see a flashing screen. I want to see pretty girls. I want to see action, shooting, running, jumping, driving, and so on. But when you start to realize that you can't read a book, that you keep reading the same paragraph over and over and over, 
goes, what, what happened to my brain? Because, you know, for a thousand years, people have been using this tech. How come I can't do it? After all, I learned to read when I was a little kid. How come I can't read? And then you become aware of what has happened to your brain. And if you have some self-respect, you're not okay with that. So you cultivate habits of disconnecting, do your work online if that's, what you, if that's where you work, and then turn that stuff off. Pick up a book. Begin to focus your attention, enhance your ability to concentrate. And of course, I would like to see listeners to our conversation engage meditation, which is a scary word for a lot of people because these weapons of mass distraction have left us in a place where the scariest thing is to be disconnected from input. And just to be quietly by ourselves without a flashing screen or without something, you know, playing on our, in our earbuds. And that quiet is scary to some people, scary to everybody, actually, in the beginning. But the answers to the changes that we need to make to become more powerful men, to become more solid, to become more effective, to live in what the Taoists call Wu Wei, which is to be maximally effective with minimal effort. Answer to this begins with quieting the mind with meditation. Where would someone begin if they've never meditated before? So there are many good books on the subject. There are some online apps. Of course, I don't love that because and then you're back to using your phone for, you know, for meditation. But I guess it's better than using it for video games or something. There, there are some good ones. Uh, I, I myself give Zoom classes uh, in that, and we can talk about that later. But many, many, there are many teachers online for, for meditation, but better than that. And, and you know, we have to turn to online teachers during the, the pandemic. But you know, as soon as the vaccines are, are widely in hand and we can begin to gather again, the best thing is to find a local meditation group and go do that physically in the company of other people. And, you know, there, there's an advantage to that, which is, goes beyond disconnecting from the phone. One, one of the advantages is that, and, and this is a tough thing for a lot of people to swallow, and it's difficult to explain. And honestly, I'm not sure that I can explain it, at least in Western terms. But for whatever reason, there seems to be some kind of energetic resonance which makes it easier to meditate when you are in a group of people who are also meditating than to do it by yourself staring at your monitor. I've noticed that, yeah, I, I've done group meditation before. And I think maybe just being surrounded by other people who are doing the same thing. I don't know. There, maybe there's something with the camaraderie and just knowing that other people are kind of doing it too makes it a little bit easier for doing something like that than just sitting home alone doing it by yourself. But totally. where would you suggest a person would start if you were to do it all alone? So right now, and again, you know, we, we, we hope that these podcasts are somewhat evergreen. So what I'm hoping is that there will be some people listening to this who are listening to it beyond the pandemic. And, you know, they can, they can look up, you know, local meditation classes and go and find one. But during the pandemic, again, you know, just searching for uh, meditation classes online or looking on YouTube, there are quite a few guided 
meditation sessions there. So one, one thing I should say about meditation, just because it seems to be such a scary word for a lot of people, is that there is this misconception, which is that you know meditation is standing, sitting, lying, they're doing nothing. And this, this is not in any way true. Meditation is not doing nothing. Meditation is an exercise for your mind, and it is very much doing something. And just the way that there are many different kinds of exercise for the body, you know, you can jog, you can play ping pong, you can swim, you can do martial arts, uh, you know, you can play football. I mean, there, there are just, there's myriad ways to, you can ride your bike. There are myriad ways to exercise your body. And similarly, there are myriad ways to exercise your mind. And meditation should be seen as a big umbrella, just the way the word exercise is a big umbrella. Exercise means a lot of different things to different people. Some people like to hike and, you know, and so on. So in the same way, there are different traditions. Eastern meditation, there's, uh, you know, Western versions. There are meditations that are associated, for example, with the Abrahamic faiths. So there are Christian meditative traditions and Jewish meditative traditions and, and, and Muslim Islamic meditative traditions. Uh, the Sufis, uh, that beleaguered uh, the sect of, of Islam, which is represented by the, by the persecuted Kurds, uh, for example, they meditate by whirling and, and, and getting in touch with the divine by spinning around, the, the so-called whirling dervishes. This is a form of meditation. Also, for some people who can't sit still, I like to teach various forms of moving meditation, such as Tai Chi walking. So, you know, if you have a very complex choreography to movement, it tends to be less meditative because you are more anxious about like, where am I in the sequence? Am I doing it right? What comes next? You know, your attention may wander from awareness of your body. But if you're doing what we call a solo exercise, which is the same thing over and over again, your body gets in a groove. So just yesterday, in fact, I recorded a session for the World Tai Chi Congress coming up in a few days where I, I led people in just a walking meditation. So there are many, many different access points to this. And I hope you'll, in your uh, show notes, you'll give some links, which I can help you with. Yes, absolutely. I'd love to give those links and just uh, to help some people out and, and you know, give them those resources. So they're not lost here. It's really easy to listen to a podcast and just kind of turn it off and forget that it ever happened, you know? So maybe right. I would say the first step for guys, if you want to get more into this idea of meditation and, and less distraction is check out the show notes and we'll put a few links in there and just click one of them and see where it takes you. I'm curious, Yoon, you ever talk to any guys that have any specific trouble with any aspect of dating or relationships? Does anyone come to you for specific measures uh, in that area at all? So, you know, the, the largest block seems to be about self-confidence. And there is this very fundamental problem with an excessive concern with what others think about us. And the irony, of course, is that the more preoccupied we become with the approval, approbation, 
forbearance or understanding of others is that the very act of focusing on what other people think about us undermines exactly the self-confidence that we need to achieve that approval. It's like a little knot. You know, you can't quite untie it because most of us care what the world thinks about us and we want to be liked and loved. And at the same time, preoccupation with that ends up robbing us of the awareness and sensitivity and attention to our own inner world, which is another way of saying that unless we become really clear about who we are, what we want, what we're good at, what we like, what we don't like, and feel okay about being who we are and acting in a way that is congruent with our true beliefs, we won't ever get what we want in terms of that self-confidence and the approval and caring of people around us. And it's kind of a vicious circle, and we have to somehow break that by disconnecting from the habit of always worrying about what other people think. So where do we begin to to get over that? You know, I think a lot of guys worry about what women are thinking when maybe they go over and talk to them or what's going on on the date or a lot of different places where guys care about, you know, what women are thinking of them. And of course, I know that's a very spe- specific circumstance. This can happen for, you know, anyone. A lot of people, we care what others think of us. What's some of the first steps to, to get over that? So I would go immediately to the concept, to the, to the uh, phenomenon of rejection. So, you know, one of, one of the biggest fears is that, you know, you're going to go over and talk to a girl and you're just going to get rejected. She's going to tell you to screw off or just turn away, you know, or laugh at you or something. And it's really helpful to remember <laughs> the thing that is most difficult, but most important, which is that even though I've just been talking about cultivating comfort in one's own skin, in these interactions, and it's neither a paradox nor simultaneously a mutually exclusive thing to understand. In other words, you can you can be clear about who you are, but you can still be rejected by somebody for reasons that you cannot control and that actually have nothing to do with you. So, you know, I, I manufacture to make the point, the example of you're a tall, redheaded guy and you're lanky and you go over and you want to talk to a girl and she has just broken up with a tall, lanky, redheaded guy. And the last thing she wants is another one, right? I mean, this is in her head, right? It's nothing to do with you. You have nothing to do with that guy. You never know him. You don't know anything about him. You don't even know this. She's like, oh, God, no, right? And again, she's not looking at you. She doesn't know you. This has nothing to do with you. But there's just some knee-jerk thing that, and then, you know, you, you go away with your tail between your legs and you think, God, you know, I'm no good with women. Nobody, girls don't like me, blah, blah, blah. When in fact, it wasn't all about you at all. So the paradox, the seeming paradox that I'm identifying here is that at the same time that I'm saying that we want to work on ourselves, 
it's also true that out there in the world, it's not all about you. And that, you know, 80%, maybe higher, of the times we are rejected have nothing whatsoever to do with us. A girl may not be interested for reasons that we will never know, but that clearly, because she hasn't said two words to us, don't have to do with who we are. Now, okay, maybe she doesn't like our look, in which case a guy that has trouble with that has only to realize that there are girls he doesn't like the look of either. Right? That, that's just personal taste. And this is a matter of odds. You know, you keep doing it until you find someone who does like your look. But the point is to be able to make the distinction between who you are and who the girl reacts to. This is a critical distinction. You have to remember, she doesn't know you. She's not rejecting you. She can't reject you if she doesn't know you at all. But it feels like she did that. When the reasons for her not being interested are entirely about her, and they're in her head, and they're her perception, and they're not at all about who you are. It's very important. Yeah, it's interesting how we, we, we don't think about it in that way. And yet we still, you know, we... we we let it get to us and we aren't able to make that distinction and we let almost like the monkey mind take over. And you really think it's so personal so fast. So let's take like the most hurtful and deep example of that. Let's say you're married for 10 years and your wife comes and says, I want a divorce. Now, in this case, you can't tell yourself that she's rejecting you because she doesn't know you. Right, she knows right. you, clearly. You know, you've slept with her, you've lived with her, you've been with her, you're 10 years in, and she wants a divorce. Still, still, unless there is some previously identified issue, like you're an alcoholic and you haven't sought help, you're a gambler and you haven't sought help, you're another kind of addict and you haven't sought help. I mentioned these because, you know, addictions to various things like this are a primary cause of the end of relationships. But even something more subtle, like there are things that you do that she has expressed bother her and you, she would like you not to do them or things she wants you to do that you have chosen not to do. In other words, you can, you can see how the path and how you got to where you are. You can understand this rejection, all right? In this case, you have to ask yourself, look, am I at fault here because she, you know, told me a thousand times, please take a shower, you stink, or, you know, please get a job or please stop using crack or whatever else she's, you know, she's objecting to and you've chosen not to do it, then okay, then it's on you, right? She's leaving you and you know why and that's your problem, you got to work on it. But a lot of times it's not that. A lot, of, a lot of times it could be something in her own evolution or she met another guy or she changed and she doesn't want what you have anymore. And, and, you know, I'm not saying that this still isn't very hurtful, but I'm trying to use this as an example of the fact that it, we still have trouble understanding that a lot of times rejection and the difficulties in relationships come not just because of us, but very much because of another person and in things we cannot control. And of course, that's really painful and that's bad. But if you understand that, then you can understand that when you go up to a girl in a bar and none of those things are true, 
There's nothing about you that she knows. She can't dislike anything about you. She hasn't, she hasn't met you yet. She can't dislike your habits. She doesn't know them. She can't dislike, dislike your likes or your proclivity. She doesn't know what they are. She just rejects you off of hand. That's on her 100%. And again, you know, we make allowances for the fact that, you know, you, you didn't brush your teeth or something. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that you, that we're, we're sort of on the same page on the basic stuff about how to take care of yourself and how to present yourself. But if you're doing those basic things, and they are basic, right? Basic. If you're doing those basic things and you're rejected, that's on her, not on you. Just go, hey, no, no problem. And then you move on to the next one. Yeah, well said. Well said. This is great. If guys would like to work with you and work on some of these things that, that you teach or want to learn more about you, where can they go? So best thing to start, uh, you know, uh, do a Google uh, on Monk Row. It's Y-U-N, new word, R-O-U. Uh, you can see some things I have up on YouTube. And, but most importantly, it'll lead you to, um, to my website, which is monkunrow.com, uh, M-O-N-K-Y-U-N-R-O-U.com. And there are my, and my contact information is there. You can shoot me an email. I respond best to you know, to emails, but, but honestly, I get a lot of them. So, you know, if you're going to write to me, just put in the subject line, you know, heard you on trip show or something like that. And, and that'll, that way I won't, you know, won't go accidentally into the trash. Awesome. Sounds good. Is there anything else that you want to leave the audience with in terms of anything we've been talking about today? Yes. One more thing. Some years ago, I was in the drive through line at Starbucks getting some tea and, um, I got to the menu and I made my order and she said, it'll be a couple of bucks and there's cars in front of me. So I can't move up and I'm waiting. The guy behind me honks his horn, leans out his window and says, move up, you idiot. And of course, there's four inches between my bumper and the bumper of the car in front of me. So there is no moving up. And because, you know, I'm a great and enlightened master. My first thought is, you know, it was right before Christmas some years ago. My first job is to get out and send him for a holiday visit to the dentist. I'll show you who to honk and who you're honking. And, uh, and when I'm about to open the door, I look in the window, my, uh, the mirror, and I see his face. And he's like all red-faced and angry. And then looking in the mirror at his face, I see my own face. And I am also red-faced and angry. And I realize that whatever he's got, I've got it. It's contagious. And I have that moment of clarity. And I, I close the door and I don't get out. And uh, I get to the window and I buy my tea. And I say to the barista, you know, I'd like to buy the coffee for the guy behind me. And she says, but, you know, he's an, he's an asshole. <laughs> Why would you do that? Because she heard everything, you know, on the microphone. I said, well, you know, you don't know. Maybe he just found out his kid has cancer or he got fired or his wife left him or something. You don't know what day he's having. Just buy it. She says, well, the problem is that he's buying breakfast for his whole company and it's $140. And I look in my wallet and there's a lone 10 in there. And I say, well, uh, oh, <laughs> I said, I give him my credit card. I said, do it anyway. It's Christmas. She said, what? Really? I said, do it, do it. Anyway, I drive away and I feel like I've restored my equilibrium. I don't feel angry anymore. I feel like I did something nice. This, by the way, this whole thing became the subject of that movie with Kevin Spacey paid forward years ago. And I get a call from NBC News and they come and interview me because 
for hours and hours and hours after I did that, everyone paid for the person behind them. And the power of this small act was very interesting to me, and I learned a lot from it. And you can see this, by the way, it's on YouTube. But it's a, there is an NBC News story about this, and they interviewed me, and I said this, and this is what the takeaway that I'd like everybody to get. So there's three, three doors we have to work with. Door number one is you know conflict. He honks his horn, I go and I punch him, and you know I end up you know waving at my son through a thick glass for Christmas when I'm in jail. Force against force, door number one. Door number two, he honks. I get out and I say, you're right. I'm an idiot. I'm sorry. I didn't move the three inches. Can I spit shine your windshield for you and clean your hubcaps while I'm here? You know, also not good, yielding. Door number three is a creative solution that is defined simply as being not door number one and not door number two. That's all. That's all it is, is it's not one and it's not two. It's not force against force. Neither is it submitting and yielding. And in our attempts to meet people and in our relationships, when you are rejected or when it's going well, whenever you encounter a woman or you're trying to create something, if you remember this idea of door number three, and even if she rejects you, you come up with the solution to the problem, which is unique to each situation. And you, it's the challenge for you to figure it out. It's your creativity, your personality that results in that door number three. Door number three doesn't mean buy the coffin for the guy behind you. That was just the solution for that one. But this is a very powerful tool and it's worth thinking about in these circumstances. That's awesome. Super powerful. I like that. I like the the idea too that door number three is no actual answer. It's it's up to you to to figure out. Right. This was a very intriguing and eye opening interview. Monkey and Roe, thank you so much for doing this, for being here. Appreciate it, guys. If you connected with him and his ideas and thoughts, you can check out the show notes to learn more about him. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for the honor of the opportunity.